Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be today as we continue our way through Mark's gospel, taking a look at uh, this Jesus that Mark puts forth for us, our servant king. And so the text we're in today is Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. If you don't have a copy in front of you, you can find it on the screen behind me as we read it together. But the text begins in Mark chapter 20, or Mark chapter 3, verse 20, with these words. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now listen, it's no secret to anyone in this room that our families of origin can be the sources of some of the sweetest joys in our lives, can't they? I can remember the birth of my own children and being there in the delivery room as uh, my wife was laboring and I was just basking, okay? Um, And watching them come forth from her womb and being able to hold them for the first time. And being able to change them for the first time. Being able to feed them for the first time. Being able to rejoice over this new life that God has brought into the world. It's one of the sweetest joys, right? Uh, Or see grandparents coming around those times and being able to rejoice in the fact that they don't have to take this child home and feed them. They don't have to take this child home and change them. They don't have to take this child home and do all the things that a parent has to do. They just get to delight over that child, right? It's the source of some of the sweetest joys in life. But the flip side can also be true is that our families of origin can not only be the sources of some of the sweetest joys, but also of some of the most devastating frustrations, the most difficult pains and hurts, uh, and, and, and dysfunction, right? You think of a, a child that might go wayward. You think of a, a family that might end in a mother and father who would walk away from each other and that marriage would end in divorce. See, they can be the, it can be the source of the sweetest joys, but also some of the most devastating pains in our lives. Whenever we see people isolated from one another, and that can be felt most frequently this time of the year. As we move into the holiday season, to Thanksgiving and to Christmas, and we see families of origin that are, that are isolated from each other and spread out from each other that 
have no connection over the holiday season in which all the other families are gathering around the table to celebrate and with Thanksgiving filling their hearts and gratitude, filling their minds and their conversations. Or whenever they gather around uh, at Christmas and they celebrate by the giving of gifts and remembering the greatest gift ever to be given in the sending of God's Son, our Savior, into the world. And yet they're doing that alone, apart from those that they should, they feel they should be most closest to in this life. See, our, origin, our families of origin can be the source of sweetest joys and devastating, soul-shattering wounds in our lives. But I want you to know that in the Gospel, in the truth of who Jesus is and what He's come to do, I want you to know that what Jesus is able to do is He's able to sweeten even the most fulfilling and functional of families by His presence. And He's able to give hope even to the most devastating and dysfunctional of family dynamics because of who He is and what He's come to accomplish. And see, in this text in particular this morning that we read together and that we're going to be looking at here, Jesus takes the family and He redefines it. And He redefines it in a way that gives hope to those who have devastatingly dysfunctional families and deep wounds. Okay? Because some of us, listen, not only, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, those of you who are parents where you have, have, have you felt like butterfingers and you dropped your child, right? you're trying to carry your child from one place to another, or they roll off the top of the changing table onto the floor, right? there's all kinds of things going on, get them out of the bathtub and they're slippery with soap and all of a sudden they fall, right? you drop your child. And you, you, heart, you can't recover from that. right? You spend days in agonizing over that. But listen, there's some of you in this room who've been dropped in more significant ways by your families. Do you know that what Jesus says in this is able to give hope to you? And I want you to know that for those in this room who are able to celebrate every, every birthday with families who are all part of the faith, and can celebrate together the sending of God's Son, He's able to even sweeten that by what He says in this text. So let's take a look at how Jesus redefines the family, because He does in Mark chapter 3. Now listen, when Jesus returns home from the mountain where He calls and appoints the apostles, an overwhelming crowd gathers so, that, so much so that they couldn't even eat. Right? They, they like, can't even get elbow room right, to serve and to... To, to enjoy a meal together. And at this point, as they're gathered, crowded into this house, Jesus' family of origin, His biological family shows up. His mother and brothers are on the scene. And the reason that they come is in order to, the text says, seize Him. Now that word seize literally means to physically restrain. To arrest Him. That's where it's used in other places in the Greek New Testament. Right? They're going to take possession of Him, forcibly restrain Him to master, rule, or control Him. That's why they've come. And we're told in the text the reason they've come to physically, forcibly restrain Him is because they think that He's crazy. They think that He's out of His mind. This is the way the text words it. Literally, that word used there means to be psychologically deranged. Right? That they come and they show up because they think Jesus is a few fries short of a happy meal. Right? That he doesn't have everything together. All the, the neurons aren't firing on their all, all the cylinders aren't firing for Jesus, right? He's only firing on six out of the eight. Something's wrong. And so they show up with a straight jacket, sedatives, and an appointment with the nice doctors at the hospital. 
hospital with the white padded walls. That's what they think of Jesus in this moment. So they're coming to restrain him. Right? Because essentially in that culture, Jesus being related to them, right, he, he brought either honor or dishonor upon their family. And it was a huge honor and shame culture in Jesus' day. And so the family is not only coming to restrain him for his protection, but listen, they're coming to restrain him to preserve their honor. Because they've heard what Jesus is doing, they've heard what Jesus is saying. He's calling himself the Son of Man. This great figure in the Old Testament who would show up to judge and cleanse the earth and rule over all things. He's saying that He's Lord of the Sabbath. right? That He not only will be there at the end of this created order, but He was there at the beginning of it. Who who says things like that? We've got to go take possession of Him. And so they show up to seize Him. But once they make it to Jesus and they call out to Him, and the message reads, you can imagine the message trying to filter in like a game of telephone, you know? There's like, hey, there's somebody. Hey, can you tell, can you tell Jesus we're here to see him? Well, psh, can you tell Jesus they're here to see him? Can you tell Jesus? They just pass it along this massive crowd that's gathered there in this house. When the message finally gets to Jesus, Jesus responds by saying, who are my mother and brothers? In other words, is it those who are standing outside seeking to restrain me, maybe to hijack me for their own agenda, to... to, to kind of govern me to preserve their own honor. Is that my mother and my brothers? And he looks around at those who are seated there in the circle with him, and he says, no, this is my mother and my brothers. Those who are closest to me identify with who I am and why I've come. They're not seeking to restrain me. They're not seeking to hijack me for their own agenda. They're not embarrassed of me or ashamed of me to preserve their own honor, but they're alongside of me. They're with me in what the Father has sent me to do. So Jesus redefines the family. He redefines those who are closest to Him. He says, my primary allegiance and loyalty is not, Jesus says, to my nuclear family, but to my new family. To my new family. So what does it mean to be a part of this new family of Jesus? Two things I want to share with you this morning. The first one is this. To be a part of this new family that Jesus is creating, it means that you order your life around His family values. Now listen, every family has a set of values that governs how they live, don't they? There are certain things in cultural context, certain things that you were raised with in your nuclear family Uh, that have influenced and shaped the way that you make decisions about money, the way you make decisions about how you raise your children, the way that you make decisions, they shape how you act. There are certain value systems operative in nuclear families that shape and influence the members of those families. And the same is true with regards to this new family that Jesus is forming. He says, they do the will of God. In other words, the value system that permeates this new family that Jesus is creating is that their first and foremost concern is to do God's will. Now, when you read throughout the rest of the New Testament uh, and even the rest of the Old Testament, there are a number of texts in which the Bible refers to particular aspects of God's will or what it means to do God's will. Right? If you go to 1 Peter chapter 4, you're going to see Peter say this, that that the remaining time that we have here in the flesh is no longer for human desires, but 
for God's will. In other words, there are instances in which our fleshly human desires, listen, I, I, I can probably get a witness on this this morning, in which our fleshly human desires run contrary to what God has called us to do and commanded us to do. Right? His will. Okay? And so he says the time that we have remaining after we've been redeemed is not to give full expression to every desire of our heart even those, particularly those sinful desires, those fleshly desires, but rather it's to bring those desires under the rule and reign of our King Jesus, allow Him to govern our lives and dictate what we do. He says that's what the time that we have remaining following our redemption is for. Or you look at places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul says this in verse 18, he says, Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That you give thanks, that you have a heart that's overflowing with gratitude. He doesn't, now listen very closely. He doesn't say for everything, but he says in everything. In other words, in every circumstance that you might find yourself, in every situation that you might be thrust into, Right? In things that are outside of your control and things that are under your control in all of life, he says, give thanks in the midst of all these things that are circulating around you. For this is God's will for you that you have a heart that is like an ever, never, what's the word I'm looking for? Ever flowing spring of gratitude that wells up from deep places within you. It's God's will that you give thanks. In all things. But we have that, you know, things you buy at like Kirkland's, those little, with nice little cursive fonts and everything, uh, little signs of Scripture that's setting there above the hall tree as, as you walk into the door of our home and out of the door of our home. Because I want to see that every day. I need to see that every day. <laughs> that in everything, give thanks. Or other places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, for this is God's will. What is God's will? Your sanctification. In other words, that you look and you think and you act and you value more like Jesus today than you did yesterday. And more like Jesus tomorrow than you do today. Right? That your sanctification is God's will to be formed into the image of Christ. And he says a part of that in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, so in other words, your free, free reign over your sexuality is not a part of God's will for your life using your human sexuality however you would. Okay, your addiction to pornography is not a part of God's will for your life. Do you know that? It's not. It says that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now we could go on and on and on and see all these different places where God says... This is my will. You give thanks. This is my will that you submit to the rule of the Spirit in your life and not to your fleshly passions for the time that you have remaining. This is God's will that you look more like Jesus in one particular area of abstaining from sexual immorality. But there are other places as well where God just gives commands. He doesn't explicitly say, this is my will. But anytime you see a command in the Scripture, you can assume something that He wants from us. Something that He wants for us. And in particular to how the family relates to each other. Listen to some of these in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is a part of this new family values. 
is that I'm going to compete with you to make you feel valued. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. When people walk into your life, do they have a sense of the overwhelming honor and value that they possess, the dignity that they have as a human being made in the image of God because you're outdoing them in showing honor to them and brotherly affection to them. In Romans 12.16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. There be a unity amongst this family that Jesus, this new family that Jesus is creating. There be a harmonious relationships that would exist because we're not haughty. We don't set ourselves on platforms and positions above other people, but even the most lowly among us, we are associating with, we're rubbing shoulders with, we're not separating ourselves from. Or in Romans 14.13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. This is in the context Paul's talking about the way that we exercise our liberty in Christ. He says, there are some who have weak consciences, some who have strong consciences. And he says, for those who have strong consciences, it is their responsibility not to put a stumbling block in front of their brother who has a weaker conscience that would restrict them from doing some things that a brother that has a stronger conscience is freely able to participate in and do. And Paul says... Let us not pass judgment on one another. Listen, that comes from those of toward those of a stronger conscience because they do participate in some things, and those who have a stronger conscience toward those who have a weaker conscience because they don't participate in those things. He says, going both directions, don't pass judgment on one another. It's one of the family values. Is anybody with me? Galatians chapter six, verse two: Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. And then Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul says this in those two verses. He says, listen, in Galatians, he says, bear one another's burdens. Shoulder those things alongside of one another that are causing them to feel weighed down. But then in Ephesians, he says, bear with one another. Hmm. It might be a lot easier to bear one another's burdens than it is to bear with one another. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. These are all part of the family values that shape the reality of this new family that Jesus is calling forth. So the first way that we, that we, that we are, the first thing that means to be a part of this new family is that we order our life around these family values. And we embrace these things. The second thing that I want to say to you this morning about what it means to be a part of this family is this, is that not only do you order your life around these family values, but you open your life to His family members. You open your life to His family members. Now listen, I don't know um, if you can... I, I, I still remember the first time I met my wife's family. Okay? I had that meet the family moment. Mm. I was terrified. Utterly terrified. We were coming home from college and they were, they were going to have a big meal together, right? And you, it, it, perhaps if you're married, you maybe recall that time, that day in which you met the family moment, okay? Where you walked into the family reunion. That's terrifying, right? <laughs> or you walk into that holiday setting 
and everybody knows each other. You're kind of on the outside looking in and you're wondering, are they going to receive me? Are they going to accept me? Are they going to embrace me? Is anybody going to talk to me? Or am I going to kind of sit over in the corner and just kind of be quiet? Days I can just, back then you didn't have a phone to entertain you, right? You couldn't just veg out and surf Facebook. Right? What's, what's this experience going to be like? We've all had those meet the family moments. And listen, sometimes you meet the family and you got that crazy one-eyed uncle out on the front porch with a shotgun. Okay? We all have one of those, don't we? Might be off-putting. But listen, here's the question. Whenever we meet new family members who are part of this new family, do we open our lives to them? Jesus says that His highest allegiance and loyalty is not toward those who raised Him, but toward those who are part of His redemptive mission. Listen, that is hard. In our day and age, that is a hard thing to fall on our ears. Because listen, particularly within evangelical circles, we spend so much time focusing on the family. In fact, there's an organization called Focus on the Family. An evangelical organization. Listen, it's not a bad thing to focus on the family. It's not a bad thing to have a healthy dynamic within your family of origin, within your nuclear family. It's a good thing. God ordained the family. It's part of the fabric of human societies. That's why when you see families beginning to break down, you see cultures and societies beginning to fall apart. It's not a bad thing to to have a healthy family, cultivate healthy family dynamics and relationships. Go to marriage and family counseling. Read marriage and family books. All those things are good in their proper place. But listen, church. Jesus says, Jesus says, for those of you who have the sweetest of family experiences, there is a family. There's a family that runs deeper and truer than even that. And for those of you who have the most devastating of family experiences, there is a family that can heal and restore you. It's this new family that He is forming around Himself and His mission. And listen, as we are part of that, that new family, listen, we open our lives to those other family members. We make time and space in our lives, not just for our nuclear family, but for this new family. Okay. Listen, I, I was not raised in the church. I didn't, come to, I, I didn't come to faith in Christ because of the influence of my parents. My, my parents, to this day, there's no evidence of fruit in their lives that would give anyone any reason to think that they were believers. I've shared the Gospel with them multiple times. And they're, 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 the last time that I had the conversation with them, they just asked that I not stop praying for them. And so I have not. But listen... Listen, what I have found in the church, what I have found in the church far outweighs anything I ever found in my own nuclear family. And that is a hard thing to say, and that is a hard thing to hear. But I want you to know that it's true. That God can use this family to heal and restore even the most broken and devastating of wounds that have arisen on account of our families of origin. And if we would open our life to new family members, we can not only do that in my life, but also in yours. Listen to Romans chapter 15 and verse 7. 
Paul says this, he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Listen, I'm con- I get concerned sometimes whenever I see other Christians treating their fellow Christians as door-to-door salesmen. Right? You ever, you ever, you know what that experience is like when Terminex comes by and knocks on your door or, you know, the cable company comes by and knocks on your door and they, you open the door and, you, and you're like, oh, it's them again. And you just make small talk, you hear their spiel, not interested, you shut the door and you send them away. Right? And I'm, I get concerned whenever I see people who are a part of this new family that Jesus is forming, treating other people who are part of this new family that Jesus is forming as somebody trying to sell pest control. Shutting the door on them, pushing them away, rather than welcoming them as we've been welcomed by God in Christ, making space in this family for new family members and receiving them into our midst, carving out time in our lives for new brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers. Because our life is so bound up in this new family, but we also want to have a seat at the table for new members. And we're continually receiving people So open your life to his members. Order your life around his values. That's what it means to be a part of this new family. The last question that I want to ask and answer this morning is this. How do you become a part of this family? Because Jesus answers that here in the meat of this passage. See, most scholars would say that Mark uses this kind of sandwich technique where he puts two layers of bread and some meat in the middle. Okay, And this is the first example of that in Mark's gospel where you got these, the introduction of a topic in the first part of the text, the conclusion of the topic in the latter part of the text, and then you got the point of it right in the heart of it. And so J- Jesus introduces this about family at the top, family at the bottom, and then in the middle. How do you become a part of this new family? And listen to what Jesus says. He says you have to be set free by the stronger man. you got to be set free by the stronger man. Listen, you don't become part of this new family by physical descent. My kids, though they were born to a pastor, they are not a part of this new family because they are the fruit of my loins. They're not. Okay? It's not by physical descent. So they're not members of the church or the church because they are my kids. They're not members of the church until they are born again. Not born from me, but born again. And until they publicly identify with Jesus by saying, yes, I belong to Him. I am His. I'm dying to myself and rising to live this new kind of life through baptism. So they're not members of this church until they're born again and baptized. Right? So you don't become a part of this family by physical descent or just by hanging around the family. Okay? You know, just, I find Jesus pretty interesting or helpful in some areas of my life. So I just hang around the family. Like that's, that's not what it means to be part of the family. They're just hang around. In fact, when you see someone hanging around your family that you don't know and they're just kind of hanging out there, what do you do? Yeah, you might call the police. <laughs> right? On, on, on uh, when was it? On Friday afternoon, um, Caleb was out in the field across the street from our house practicing with his fly rod. Okay? So he's got this fly rod that he wants to learn how to fish. And so he's actually, man, I, kudos to him. I, I, I can't do anything with that thing. Right? Just give me a bait cast reel, I'll cast it out and wine, chunk and wine. But he's out there with a the fly rod manipulating it and practicing how to cast and move that line. And there's this pest control guy who's coming to treat the yard across the street from our house. He shows up, 
And then he wanders out into the field, and he's standing there next to my son, just watching him with his fly rod. And so I had like the, like the dad radar start going off in my mind. And I'm like, hey, bud, come see. Right, come on over here. And the, the guy comes across. He's like, oh, I was just watching him use his fly rod. But uh, I, I love the fish. I've got these 10-foot crappie poles that I use whenever I go. And I'm just fascinated by the way he was working that rod. Kudos to him for practicing. I didn't mean anything by it. But listen, that, that dad radar went off. Right? Because there was somebody just hanging around my kid. I didn't know. I didn't know what his intentions were. Right? And so you don't become a part of the family just by showing up and hanging out. Right? You only become a part of the family. You only become a part of the family by being born again. Listen, one Puritan pastor, Richard Hooker, said it this way. He said, the church is in Christ as Eve was in Adam. Indeed, by grace, we are all of us in Christ and in His church. As by nature, we are in those our, in our first parents. God made Eve of the rib of Adam and His church He frames out of the very flesh, the very wounded and bleeding side of the Son of Man. What He's saying is this, in the same way that the woman was formed from the rib of the man, so the church is formed out of the flesh and bone given by Jesus Himself. He says, by nature, we are all in Adam, but by grace, those of us who have come to faith in Christ are in Christ, in His church, and in this family. This new family that He's forming. Because they've been set free. They've been rescued by the stronger man. And that brings us into the, into the text and the heart of that text. And this is, this is where it gets a little interesting because a lot of us are like freaking out about verses 28 to 30. We're like, oh, the eternal sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is that? Am I guilty of it? I, we, we get all worked up about those kinds of things. But let me just put your minds at rest a little bit this morning. While Jesus, listen, while Jesus' family believed that he was deranged, Right, the scribes that come up from Jerusalem, they believe that he's demonic. Okay, that what he's doing, he's doing by the powers of evil. And so they accuse him of that. And so this is the basis for Jesus' words in verses 28 to 29 when he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whoever blasphemies, whatever blasphemies they utter, whatever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now listen, this eternal sin that Jesus is speaking of here. Here's what it is. Okay? It's to attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan himself. That's what Jesus is referring to. It's to harden ourselves to the Holy Spirit's witness to Christ and refuse to acknowledge Jesus for who He is, our Creator King who has rights and authority over all of our life. This is the eternal sin. Right? It's not adultery. It's not an addiction. It's not suicide. If you were raised in context where you were taught that was the unforgivable sin to take your own life, that is not what Jesus says. Rather, He says, it is a rejection of the Holy Spirit's witness to the person and work of Jesus. It is the sin of unbelief. That's the eternal sin. So if you're a Christian in the room this morning who has trusted Jesus, for whom the Holy Spirit has turned the floodlights of illumination upon Jesus, and you've fled to Him, you've clung to Him, you've trusted in Him, you treasure Him above all things, right? you are not guilty of the eternal sin, nor can you be. Because you have not rejected the Spirit's witness of the Son but you've responded to it in faith. So listen, 
Jesus says this is, what they're, this is what they're accusing him of, of being demonic. So if Jesus is not performing the works he's doing by the demonic power, then what's going on here? And here's where it gets exciting. Okay? Go with me. In verses 23 to 27, Jesus speaks to the scribes in parables and he begins to dismantle the logic behind their accusations. Okay? So he says this in verses 24 to 26. He says, A kingdom or a house divided against itself cannot stand. It will fall, it will fail. That makes sense, right? If a kingdom is working against itself, if there are factions within the kingdom who are working to, overth- to try and overthrow other factions in the kingdom, eventually it's going to erode from within. Same thing is true in a home. It's going to erode from within if it's divided against itself. So if Satan is divided against himself, Jesus says, he will not stand. Jesus says this is one way that a kingdom can fall. It can fall by internal division. But he says that's not what's going on here. Because there's another way that a kingdom can fall. Another way that a house can come to ruins. He says it's not from internal division, but from external invasion. They can be overthrown by one that is stronger than them. And so in verse 27, Jesus says that essentially that's what He's doing. If you look in verse 27 at the beginning, there's this, there's this conjunction. You English majors are all geeked up. The rest of you are like, meh. But, but, B-U-T. In other words, let me contrast this internal division with another option. External invasion. He says that's what's taking place here. Jesus says you cannot break into the house of a strong man and rob him blind. Okay? And plunder his possessions unless you first tie up the strong man. Bind the strong man. Render him immobile. Render him impotent. Render him powerless. Jesus says that's the only way that you can go into a strong man's house and plunder his house. But once he is bound, then you're able to plunder his house. You're able to plunder his kingdom. And in this context, the strong man Jesus is referring to is Satan himself. The one that he was accused of being in cahoots with. And Jesus says that his kingdom, Satan's kingdom, is united in its purpose. It has one purpose. Right? In fact, there's other places in the, in the Scriptures in Ephesians 2, 2 where Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. Okay, So there's this, this sense of royalty that he has, this kingdom that he has. Right? He's the God of this age. He's referred to elsewhere. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we're told that he's the God of the world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so Satan has a purpose to blind and conceal the identity of Jesus from those that he has deceived and to keep them as his possession. And Jesus says, you cannot plunder a strong man's kingdom unless you first render the strong man immobile and impotent. You limit the scope of his power and authority and you bind him up. And listen, the only person able to bind the strong is a stronger man. I don't know if you know, but that'll preach. The only person who can bind the strong man is a stronger man. And the way this, but, and so, oh, listen, the, I want you to see something that Jesus says, I'm the stronger man. I'm the stronger man. And I've come to bind the strong man. Listen, he said, listen, look, 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 the way that he does it, church, is not with a sword. 
It's not with an army. It's not with chariots and spears. He doesn't show up mobilized to fight. But the way Jesus binds the strong man, because had He done that, He would have set free a people in a place in a particular period of time. But the way that Jesus would bind the strong man to plunder His house forever by Himself being bound. Not unwillingly, but willingly. He would be bound and led away to the cross where He would give His life as a ransom for you and I. See, the way that He would exercise His stronger strength is through weakness, through humility, through laying His life down. And that would bind the strong man forever. Listen, I don't know what you think about the Harry Potter books. You can write me an email afterwards. But at the end of the first one, at the end of the very first Harry Potter book, Harry Potter um, is, 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 is uh, sought out by the strong man, by the evil one. Okay, Lord, Lord Voldemort. He takes control of one of his servants. And this is what we read in the, in the story. It says this, Voldemort screams, seize him. And Harry felt the hands close on his wrists. And to his surprise, he let go with a cry and bunched over in pain. Looking at his fingers, they were blistering before his eyes. Kill him, Voldemort said. Again, the servant lunges at Harry, but he recoils from him a second time with his face boiling and blistering, his body filled with huge red, raw, shiny wounds. Harry realized that the evil one can't touch him. And later on, he's curious about this. So speaking to his mentor, Dumbledore, he asked Dumbledore why the evil one couldn't touch him. Why the evil one couldn't get near him. Why the evil one continued to recoil from him. And Dumbledore says, years ago, Voldemort tried to kill you. But your mother gave her life to save. And a love as powerful as your mother's sacrificial love for you leaves its mark. You have been loved that deeply, that sacrificially. When you've been loved that way, it will give you protection forever. It's the deeper magic before the dawn of time. And Harry begins to dry his eyes with his sheet as he was weeping, thinking about the love that his mother had had for him. See, this is the way that Jesus binds the strong man by willingly, voluntarily sacrificing His life for us. And it's because He has given His life for us then the evil one, whenever He comes to call and claim His own to constitute His new family, then the evil one, the strong man, is overthrown by the one who is stronger and must give up those that He's held in captivity. That those who've had blindfolds over their eyes, they're now removed and they see the glory of Christ and they respond to Him in faith and thereby Jesus is constituting a new family. He's adopting for Himself brothers and sisters from every nation and every tribe and every tongue who would begin to order their lives around His family values and would begin to open their lives to His family members because He redefines what it means to be a brother and sister. That's all right. I'm alone this morning. You guys, listen. That's what he's done. 
He has bound the strong man. And you know what the, I'll end with this. Part of the good news of this story is this, is that when you see Jesus redefine the family as those who embrace His identity and engage with Him on His mission and doing the will of God, I want you to know that you, though you do not have the power to bind the strong man, He did. But you know what you get to do? You get to participate in the plundering of His house. As you take the good news of the Gospel to people in places that have been shattered by sin, that have been blinded by unbelief. You get to be instruments in the hand of God as He uses you to lift the blindfold so that people may see and respond to the glory and beauty of Christ. Church, no matter your experience with your family of believers, I hope your experience with this body of believers here would be one that either sweetens your family of origin or is able to redeem and heal the wounds that exist from being dropped as you are part of this new family that Jesus has constituted. Let me pray for us. We thank you so much. We thank you for this new family that you're creating through the sending of your Son by the power of your Spirit. You're calling forth a people for yourself who would do your will. They would order their lives around your values. And they would open their lives to other members of your family. That there would be time that they would make for other brothers and sisters. And Father, I pray that if there be those in the room this morning who have never known what it is to become a part of that family, I pray, God, that You would set them free. I pray that You, by Your Spirit, would remove the scales from their eyes. You would remove the blindfolds from around their skulls. And Father, that they would be able to see, see You for who You are. See Your Son Jesus for what He's done in giving His life for them. That He voluntarily was bound to give His life in sacrificial love for us so that we might be free and rescued from the hand of the evil one. Father, I pray You'd help us as a church to participate in the plundering of the strong man's possessions. That we would see that is one of the primary reasons for which we are here every single Sunday. One of the primary reasons for which we meet in homes across our community throughout various days of the week is one of the primary reasons why we engage in community, community events to meet people who are Christless or to meet people who are churchless, who need a Savior and who need a new family. So, Father, may we see this place and these people primarily existing for us. 
but for others who do not yet know and for others who have not yet come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.